Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, we'll continue our study of Herman Melville's Omu. In the first 100 pages of that book, the narrator was picked up in the Marquesas by an American whaler. After undergoing hardship, he joins with the crew in resisting the captain and his drunken first mate. As conditions worsen, the ship sails to Papate in Tahiti. There they are sent back out to sea by the consul, who does not want to deal with the mutineers. Shortly after this, they return with the crew in open rebellion. The, event in, the events in Omu, as in Melville's earlier novel, Taipei, are based on his real adventures in the Pacific. The major events in Omu, such as the mutiny on board an Australian ship, a period of time in the Tahitian jail, and then an escape to work on a plantation really did happen to Melville. Now I love this book. While Taipei is filled with ethnographic detail, in Omu, Melville fills the pages with stories and anecdotes and a wonderful cast of characters. And they are characters in every sense of the word. My only regret when rereading this novel is how little time we get to spend with some of these people. Whether it's a sailor smuggling provisions from their ships, an Irish missionary with plenty of booze, or an imprisoned sailor playing pranks on each other, or on the people in power over them. The book is a delight, and I feel bad trying to interpret what is on the page, but Melville seems to enjoy himself when writing this, and we will enjoy reading it. For now, let us take a closer look at the next 100 pages of Umu. Chapter 27. The near-mutinous crew arrives in Papate. Taipei, our narrator, feels nostalgia for the United States when looking on the damage, on a, a damaged American whaler. The consul, Wilson, appears and is angry at the return of the Julia. He demands that the mutineers are brought forward to be punished. Despite not being directly involved, Taipei is identified as the author of the Round Robin that started the sailor resistance. Wilson calls for the troops and the sailors are led away to the custody of the French. We wonder why it is that Wilson is so obsessed with getting the Julia out to sea again. It seems he's primarily concerned with a well-lubricated port and was annoyed that any crew interfered with commerce, even in a small way. <clears throat> Chapters 28 and 29. The sailors from the Julia are stored in a French frigate and occasionally fed. The boatswain's mate comes down to punish the, the boys, younger sailors, but fails to strike any of them. This leads to a meditation on discipline in English ships, which are revealed to be much harsher. By this point in the novel, the power games at sea are well known, but Melville takes the time to remind us that violence is always the last resort of the petty tyrants that rule in navies and merchant fleets. Taipei also speculates on the differences of the culture at sea between France and England and suspects relatively lax discipline accounts for French naval weaknesses. Due to the violence of the lash, the English sailor becomes in time a thoroughbred tar, equally ready to strip and take a dozen on board his own ship, or, cutlass in hand, dash pell-mell on board the enemies. Chapters 30 and 31. They are taken from the French ship after a week and returned to Wilson for judgment. Wilson, still sore over the difficulties with the Julia, or Wilson is still sore over the difficulties with the Julia, Taipei wonders why Wilson hates him and the doctor so harshly and concludes that it's because people in authority cannot accept the intellectual superiority among the people beneath them. They're marched out of the village into an English jail. The f in fact, this jail was simply a repurposed native structure. Alongside the lash, 
the authority of the Maritime Empire has imprisonment. The T- a Tahitian man is charged with maintaining the jail, and he went by the name Captain Bob. He seems to relish his work and treats the prisoners as well as can be expected, taking on the role as host as much of his duties as much of as his duties allow. He never ever hesitates to do his job. The conditions are as you might expect. The crew spends their first night or so in shackles, and pretty soon Captain Bob just releases them to walk around the complex. Their diet is diet is slightly improved from what they had on the ship. They're now able to enjoy breadfruit and oranges. Chapter thirty two. Safely in jail, our narrator can take some time to discuss the local political happenings. The English and the French dispute control of the island. When two French priests were harassed by Tahitans and put to work on an English vessel, the French demanded compensation from the English. The real story here is that the Tahitans wanted to resist French rule and found the English a useful ally in these struggles. Melville cannot help but include a fantasy that the English European missionaries will seek out some uninhabited island rather than impose their will on the native islanders. Chapters 35 and 37. The English jail takes on the function of a zoo of sorts as the local people arrive to gaze on the captured sailors. In turn, the sailors get to look in at the islanders, many of whom are infected with elephantesis, called fafa in the local language. Typey goes on an aside about his future observation of a white man living on a nearby island, suffering from the same affliction. He discusses the natural beauty of the people, at least the healthy ones. One of the local women who visits the jail was a bit of a seductress, using her beauty to win over Captain Bob, and at the same time getting Typey all hot and bothered. Soon the sailors are given their run of the jail and allowed to move at will. Their food is pretty good, but meager due to an apparent famine on, on Tahiti. They start to reach out further and even participate in local feasts. They're checked up on from time to time by the council, particularly a man named Dr. Johnson. One of the crew plays a trick on this doctor by feigning death by consuming too much laudanum. The efforts of the sailors to make controlling them as difficult as possible continue even while they're in jail. Chapter 36. After a couple weeks in jail, the crew is brought before the council again. They are given a choice of serving on the Julia or taking a trip on the Rosa, which is destined for Sydney, where they'll be put on trial. The sailors state their case for refusing to serve. Calling the council's bluff, they return to the jail. Clearly, the council was not really desiring to pay for these sailors' voyage to Sydney for such a minor trial, and the crew called his bluff. Chapter 37. Some French priests visit the jail, apparently on their local rounds. Melville strongly suggests that these bachelors focused on converting local women in order to enter into sexual relations with them. Pity it was they couldn't marry. Pity for the ladies of the island, I mean, and for the cause of morality. For what business has the ecclesiastical old bachelors with such a set of trim, little, native handmaidens? These damsels were their first converts, and devoted ones they were. One of the priests is an Irishman named Father Murphy. He looks for some Irish sailors, but there are two, but one is so odious Murphy simply bypasses him and focuses on the good one. Murphy promises to put in a good word for the sailor named Pat. Later, Wilson calls for Pat, who is sent back to work on the Julia, and when he refuses work, Pat is returned back to jail. Typee and Dr. Longghost convert to Catholicism and befriend Murphy to partake in his spirits. Of course, it's not a serious conversion. Um, chapter 38. Finally, the Julia leaves Papete. The captain has simply given up. Germain has lost himself in drink and is getting worse as longer they remain in the harbor. 
And since there was enough sailors just hanging around to staff the ship, they decided to just head off with a new crew. The hiring process reveals another example of sailor power in these colonial spaces. Now, there was no lack of idle sailors ashore, mostly beachcombers who formed themselves into an organized gang headed by one Mac, a Scotchman, whom they styled the Commodore. By the laws of the fraternity, no member was allowed to ship on board a vessel unless granted permission by the rest. In this way, the gang controlled the port, all discharged seamen being forced to join them. Uh, securing a new crew through this informal network, the Julia departs. I'm really fascinated here about how they created their own kind of inverted hierarchy here, where the sailor becomes the commodore, and they literally have a, a control on the market of labor in, in Tahiti. Chapter 39. Germain has left the sailor's personal belongings on shore, which the prisoners are reacquainted with. With the assorted treasures in these sailor trunks, the crew is able to win the hearts of the local Tahitans. Chapter 40. This chapter opens with Taipei's friendship with Kulu, a comely youth, quite a buck in his way. This romance lasts only briefly as Kulu redirects his attention to a new sailor who just arrived. Um, the crew is now living fairly, pretty freely near the village, even attending religious services and noticing Wilson's presence from time to time at these services. It must be said that it's really hard for the modern reader to look at this section and this relationship between Taipei and Kulu and not conclude that there was a sexual part to this relationship. At the very least, there was sexual attraction. The words intimacy, love, and affection are used throughout this passage to describe this short-lived love affair. Chapter 41. The sailors begin to ponder sailing off. They get bored with life in the jail. Captains are indeed coming to the jail to look for sailors to possibly recruit. They often bring supplies that um, will be used as an incentive to get these sailors to sign with a new ship. Taipei and Dr. Longghost take a job robbing ships um, of their provisions. And this act was merely an extension of regular thieving taking place in the harbor by the Tahitians. And this is described at length in this section about how Tahitians go to the ships and find local contacts with the sailors who help smuggle stuff out. There's a whole kind of market uh, of thieving going on, and they work their way into that to help basically pay their way while they're living in this jail. Chapter 42. Uh, they also use Captain Bob's boat to travel to a harbor island known as Motu Otu. Uh, Taipei wanted to get there, and he can't quite get there because the island was walled off and guarded. Uh, he discusses also the difficulty in determining the proper Sabbath day with a Tahitian doctor named Arhito. Because voyages had a day when crossing the Pacific, a lot of people got, were getting confused about when actually a Sabbath, and, and it's just kind of a fun little conversation they have. Chapter 43. Taipei mentions how the more respectable visitors to the island scorn the deserting sailors and other Western vagabonds. And it actually starts to seem that it's these vagabonds and deserters and castaways who form the bulk of the population um, in Tahiti, or at least of the bulk of the Western population in Tahiti. So when Taipei tries to introduce himself formally to a woman of a missionary family, it's the woman to shout in horror uh, at seeing um, our narrator. Chapters 44 and 46. Taipei discusses the various chapels around the village. One of these he calls the Church of the Coconuts. He describes a service and a sermon. Taipei concludes that there's little hope of converting the Tahitians to general Christianity. The main purpose of the Sabbath seems to be that it gives them excuse not to work that day. 
chapters 47 to 49. Now, now here's kind of the thematic core of the book, at least as far as Empire and Melville's critique of Empire stands. Um, as with this discussion of missionary Christianity, Taipei here has taken a role of kind of an anthropologist, and he does the same thing in the previous novel, Taipei. Um, the heart of this discussion is the changes in Tahiti due to European contact. And he concludes that these changes were in general violent and unproductive. While aspects of Tahitian culture had been destroyed, they have not been replaced by anything very meaningful or positive. And we, we can see this in some passages here. This is on page 410, no, sorry, 510 of the Library of America version of the book. Of all the results which have flown from the intercourse of foreigners with the Polynesians, including the attempt to civilize and Christianize them by the missionaries, Tahiti on many accounts is obviously the fairest practical example. Indeed, it may now be asserted that the experiment of Christianizing the Tahitians in improving their social condition by the introduction of foreign customs has been fully tried. The present generation have grown up under the auspices of their religious instructors. And although it may be urged that the labors of the latter have been at times more or less obstructed by unprincipled foreigners, still this is no wise renders Tahiti any less a fair illustration. All right, so simply, it's a good place to study the impact of Christianity on the people of the Pacific. So the next page, um, this is on page 511, continuing to quote directly from the text. In all cases, they have striven hard to mitigate the evils resulting from the commerce with whites in general. Such attempts, however, have been rather injudicious and often ineffectual. In truth, the barrier almost insurmountable is presented in the dispositions of the people themselves. Still, in this respect, the morality of the islanders is upon the whole improved by the presence of the missionaries. So it's a bit of a mixed bag there. Um, certainly commerce has corrupted them, and missionaries might do something to mitigate that, that corruption. Um, but he goes on to give more detail about this. Um, now, this is on page 514. And yet, strange that may seem, the depravity among the Polynesians, which renders precautions like these necessary, was in a measure unknown before their intercourse with the whites. The excellent Captain Wilson took, first, took the first missionaries out to Tahiti, affirms that the people of the island had, in many things, more refined ideas of decency than ourselves. Vancouver also has some noteworthy ideas on the subject respecting the Sandwich Islanders, that is the Hawaiians. Okay, so um, now certainly on economic aspects, the missionaries have failed to really implant the work ethic among the people here. This is on page 516 and 517. Attempts have repeatedly been made to rouse them from their sluggishness, but in vain. Several years ago, the cultivation of cotton was introduced, and with their usual love of novelty, they went to work with great alacrity. But the interest excited quickly subsided, and now not a pound of the article is raised. All right, so the best aspects, if you want to call the work ethic a good aspect of Western culture, it wasn't brought along. Um, now, this section ends with Melville talking about the depopulation and the disease and the other kind of biological and medical problems brought in by foreigners. And he concludes this on page 518. These evils, of course, are solely of foreign origin, to say nothing of the effects of drunkenness, the occasional inroads of the smallpox, and other things which might be mentioned. It is sufficient to allude to a virulent disease, 
which now taints the blood of at least two-thirds of the common people of the island, and in some other form is transmuted from father to son. Okay, so it's a few chapters here where he kind of builds up this whole argument about foreign impact, and it, it, it course corresponds with what he says in Taipei. Um, but here it's kind of more richly documented because of the impact of the West on uh, Tahiti and Papate. Chapters 50 and 51. Moving on to the main story, the situation is getting worse. Fewer ships are in the harbor and there's fewer ships to rob. The local islanders are simply getting bored of this particular crop of sailors. And they decide to seek out Wilson and demand a better standard of living if they would continue to be confined. Taipei wants to move on, though, but some of the captives refuse to relent. Taipei and the doctor resolve to find new opportunities together. This opportunity comes when two American castaways tell them of Emio. Emio? Uh, this is where they had a sweet potato plantation, and they were recruiting workers for it. Taipei and Dr. Longos decide to go with these two. They take on the names Peter and Paul. But the rest of the prisoners are pretty upset at being deserted. But they leave, nevertheless, sharing stories with their new American castaway friends. Well, this is where we'll stop for this episode. We will look back, as we look back, we'll find that Melville's main focus is on the difficulty of controlling the maritime working class. He also focuses on the close encounter that can develop between castaways and the local people, the frustrations of consular officials in main controlling this working class, and the ultimate failure of power to do much more than to shovel around these more troublesome people. Negotiation is at the heart of this novel. Negotiation between the people of the Pacific and the West, and also between the sailors and the bosses. The narrator and his comrades prove victorious in this section simply by refusing to be ruled. Well, thanks for listening to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Um, feel free to contact me at 100pagescast.com at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and share. Next episode, we'll finish up with Omu and examine some of the, some of the major themes, tropes, and concepts that make this book an important text in American literature. I will talk to you again in 100 pages. Thank you for listening. Come on and do the jail, I'd rock away.